Today's episode is sponsored by Tiny Sprouts. What if 30 minutes of playing a board game a week could strengthen your child's emotional well-being and EQ? Well, Empower Empathy is an award-winning toolkit that includes a cooperative board game and a guidebook developed with evidence-based socio-emotional learning and cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. Previously only available to professional therapists and educators, Empower Empathy is now packaged into a fun and engaging game for all families to enjoy and is now available on Kickstarter. And with this toolkit, you can empower your child with the emotional and social soft skills they need to excel in life. To learn more, visit MyTinySprouts.com and be sure to check out the Kickstarter campaign happening right now. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about trading card games, talking about collectible card games, we're talking about the modern age of TCGs and CCGs. What what even is the difference? That's one thing we're going to start off with. But we're talking about what does it look like in 2021, 2022, in this kind of modern era for these types of games. And we're talking to Asad Qureshi from Haunted Castle Gaming. Asad, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, man, really excited to have you back. You were here about a year and a half ago. It was April 2020, right as the pandemic was was becoming a real thing. You know, right around yeah. the time lockdowns were happening and, and the world was on the cusp of changing forever. You were on the show and we were talking about collectible card games back then. Uh, and I'm excited to kind of hear how things have changed in a year and a half. I mean, even just that kind of short amount of time, I feel like things have changed dramatically in so many ways across so many oh, yeah. different industries and parts of the world, entertainment and all that. And so I'm just excited to have you back on the show, get an update and, and see where things are at with these types of games. But before we get into that, remind the, the listeners who you are, how you got into games, game design and all that kind of thing. Yeah, awesome. Um, so I have been playing collectible card games since I was uh, six or seven. I was really little. Uh, my dad, I have three older brothers. My dad wanted us to play a game together as a group. And he decided uh, he was talking to a friend of his was like well you should get your kids into playing magic so he bought us all bought a bunch of magic cards we all split it to according to the colors and uh we all picked a color and that was what we played and it got us uh kind of started into that space then we started playing a bunch of other collectible card games i've been playing them since uh and then it was around the time i was in high school that decided all right let's start designing my own uh and it was one of the things me and my friends would do whenever we would run out of money and couldn't buy any more card games uh we would uh start designing our own and then those were complete garbage completely unbalanced who knew anything about playtesting at at that age and then um we we would toss those aside go back to playing a well-established game and then come back to designing our own and did this flip-flop for years uh and then back in 2015 or so i decided to sit down and take one of my old prototypes which was genesis battle of champions and actually design it fully, bring it to market, see what the entire experience is to actually publish a game. Uh, so after a time of testing and getting a player feedback, I ended up bringing the game to market in 2017. And we've been selling and pushing the game since. And then earlier this year, uh, we got distribution, which was amazing. And then uh, just recently, we started Kickstarter, and it's been growing a lot so things have changed a lot in the past since the last time we talked <laughs> yeah very cool man and i'm excited for you first of all congratulations on one just keep keeping going because it's so easy to quit it's so easy to keep running into barriers and obstacles and go you know what i'm just gonna go do something else and, and make 
more money or maybe it's going to be easier. But you've, you've stayed at it. You, you've stayed going around to different game stores and pitching it. And I'm so glad you got into distribution. I want to hear more about that in a minute because I think that's a huge <laughs> part of this conversation. Yeah. But before we kind of dive into the deeper things, let's get a good working frame, a good definition. When, we, when we're talking about CCGs, TCGs, what does that mean exactly, especially in this modern era? So a big thing that I look at is, uh, so we have board games, we have card games. What is a collectible? What is a trading item, like something you would exchange with someone else? And those are the parts that are really interesting. And it's a balance between not having all the pieces and a reason to desire the remaining pieces. So um, I d- there isn't an official like established definition between trading card games and collectible card games. The real reason why there's two different ones is because back in 95, so Magic the Gathering came out in 93, their patent was filed officially in 95, and they, I believe, had a patent around uh, collectible card games or as trading card games. I can't remember which one. And for people to get around the patent, they just started using the other one. So it was just a way to get around the patent. Uh, It wasn't an official reason for one over the other. But I feel that there's a difference. And the intention is, what are you doing with the cards? Is it to trade them to acquire ones that you need um, for deck design, for play, or things like that? Or is it collectability? Is it something that you're going to be putting in a binder holding on to, displaying somewhere, and then showing off to people in different places. So we have ours as a, we call Genesis a tactical collectible card game. But that's more because of uh, the sound of it. It sounds better to say tactical collectible card game. Like there's a lot of those harsh Ks, which feel good. Um, but uh, there is, there's a very subtle difference between two. I consider Pokemon more of a collectible card game or I consider magic more of a trading card game. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, as soon as you were talking about that, Pokemon was the first thing that came to my mind is yeah, that's definitely collectible. Nobody's playing that really. If we're being totally honest, all those YouTube videos about opening packs and whatnot, it's about the collecting. It's about the finding the cool foil card. That's worth a bazillion dollars. Right. Well, very, very cool, man. All right, so let's talk about why. Why are people drawn to these things? I mean, back in the 90s, right after Magic, I mean, this whole model of game blew up. I mean, there were so many different kinds and so many different companies getting into the space and trying to make money off of it. And it was kind of like a survival of the fittest. Like, who, who's going to be the last one standing? And obviously, Magic has, has been the last one. I mean, they're still around today. But talk about why people are drawn to these kinds of games. So there's a few factors, and there's reasons why I have played them for so long. One of the things I love the most is a collectible card game or trading card game. is something you can play for years, right? People have been playing Magic since 93, 94, and straight into now. Like, that's 20-plus years of playing the same game. And that's actually something really amazing. It creates a history. It becomes a part of your identity and your love for it. Uh, so there's that aspect. And then something that's definitely more of a modern take on it is the value that's been, uh, established within this industry. Uh, you got cards, uh, older cards in magic that accumulated more equity or more value over time than Bitcoin for a little while. Uh, it's crazy to think that some of these items became antiques, became part of, the nerd culture, the nerd history, and people want a piece of that to say, this is who I am. This is part of my identity. And a lot of things over the past little while have made the geek and the nerd culture a lot more accepted, especially the MCU, which made it that everyone was way more accepting of comic books. So all these other things became less of the um, kept in the shadow, kept in a closet that you don't let people know that you love it, and more about let's embrace it. Let's show people that this is my fandom and, uh, you know, walking down the street wearing a magic T-shirt or I got people walking down the street wearing Genesis apparel. And it is a very different age now than it was back then. So a lot of things have changed. Uh, I think that's a big aspect. People love playing the same game and mastering and perfecting that game for centuries, well, not centuries, but decades. And then uh, there's also the fact that it's, the general principle of the game stays the same, but it's ever evolving. Uh, Even though you're playing the same game, it is changing year after year and you have to keep up with what's happening. So there's so many different elements that people gravitate towards, but I think those are the ones that I've definitely 
gravitated towards myself. Yeah, definitely. One thing I've talked about on this show in the past is how, you know, a lot of times people are embarrassed about certain hobbies when they're not mainstream, when they are, you know, for instance, you mentioned comic books or in this case, Magic the Gathering, things like that. But a lot of that embarrassment goes away when people start cashing checks. And when people started finding out that you could sell a Charizard for $50,000 or more, all of a sudden, it's a little bit cooler to have some Pokemon cards in your closet when some you had to be ashamed of. And same with Magic. I, I've talked to people in this very podcast that paid for their college that made lots of money doing the world tour of Magic the Gathering, playing as a professional Magic player. All of a sudden, it's really hard for, for people to say anything when you're making more money than them at this nerdy thing. <laughs> and so I think that's definitely playing into it. Another thing I want to highlight with these games that a lot of them do so well is allowing people to feel clever. They give you interesting ways to feel smart, to, to play the cards in a certain way and set up these combos, especially if you have a deck building aspect where you're building this deck before the game even begins. So there's a lot of you know smart things that get to go into that. And I think that really draws people in. Is they It's like a puzzle to be solved and then to show that you're better at solving the puzzle than the person across the table from you that you're playing. And so it lets people feel clever. Anything you want to add as far as being you know feeling smart, feeling clever? There's another aspect to it, which I think is the friendships. Uh, a lot of people who get into these games, I know I have friends who I met through playing Magic, and we have been friends since. And maybe we don't talk about much else besides our hobbies, our collectible card games. Now we don't talk about Genesis. I mean, Magic, we talk about Genesis instead. But at the same time, we always have something to talk about because there's always something new about this this industry and these games. Uh, so friendships are formed for a long period of time. It's the same way as people who are friends because they play basketball together or some other sport together. Uh, and that is a something very, very powerful. Uh, and I think is one of the big, good, positive things that not just collectible card games, but gaming as a whole puts out into the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Community is such a valid thing to talk about in this conversation. I, I want to go deeper with it in just a little bit. But one thing, I, I, as you were talking, about, I was thinking about you know when you're when you're a kid, the the way you make friends is kind of or way you like share interests and things like that is you become friends and then you share interests. When you become an adult, you share interests and then you become friends. And so. These things, these types of games are a great way to bring people together, whether it's at your friendly local game store or through a, a Reddit thread or, or a, an online community on Facebook or something like that. You have this common interest and it doesn't matter what your politics are, what your favorite sport is. Are you married or not? Do you have kids or not? None of that really matters because you have this common interest that brings you together that you can talk about. And you can talk about the newest box set that just came out and talk about the new mechanism and all oh, that card's broken. No, oh, this card's not powered enough, whatever. But it brings people together and i think that's definitely something that uh that these games do do a great job of of creating community around them but let's talk about design a little bit why design one of these what what drew you to creating this type of game and not even creating but also like becoming a publisher and wanting to do this for real and as a business what drew you in it's that old adage right about what you know right i knew a lot about trading card games i may not know as much as some of the people who play competitive magic but when it came to any other genre of gaming, this was the one I knew the most about. So I had to be part of this. I had to be part of the conversation about what is the future of collectible card games. Uh, and then publishing out on my own. When I started in 2017, every article, every book, everywhere around the world, it said, if you wanted to publish your own collectible card game, don't. Just don't do it. No publisher will ever pick it up. And then you have to self-publish and that becomes a beast. And I was like, well, no one's going to pick it up, but I have to do this. Well, then I have no other choice. I have to do it on my own. So <laughs> it was a uh, process of elimination that I found myself in this situation. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. And I've talked about it recently on the show. Is like, if no one wants to bet on you, find a way to bet on yourself. And not that you do that lightly and you just throw a bunch of money and something like, still do your due diligence, do your research. Maybe there's a reason people don't want to bet on you and be honest about that. But at the end of the day, are you willing to bet on yourself and put yourself out there? And you've, you've done that. And I'm loving that it has paid off. It has worked out. Things are going really well. Your Kickstarter is doing extraordinarily well right now. And so, all right, let's talk a little bit about the different sales models. I want to talk about that. And then we'll dive more into kind of different aspects on a deeper level. But let's talk about the different sales models. Because if we're talking about the modern era of trading card games, like there's, there's so many different ways of doing it 
now. So tell me what those are. Tell me maybe the pros and cons of each one, what your thoughts are. <sighs> um, okay. So the big two that we're seeing, like kind of go head to head, you got the digital platforms and the analog, the physical platforms. No one has found a seamless way to marry both of these sides. Uh, there have been attempts. Pokemon has done a phenomenal uh, job at creating a digital platform where you buy a physical boost pack, you get a QR code, and then you get the same a boost pack from the same set on your digital side, but you don't get the exact same cards. Your collection can be completely different on the digital side than it is on the physical side. Uh, so there are there hasn't been a complete marriage of both of those things. And when people have tried, it has there have been quite a few attempts and quite a few lessons learned in along the way, but nothing truly successful. So there's that side on the digital side, you see more traditional uh, collectible card games. You see things like Hearthstones, uh, magic arena or magic online uh, Pokemon. Yu-Gi-Oh even has own dual links. Um, but then you get things that, that are into the blockchain and with Bitcoins or with NFTs with like uh, gods unchained. Uh, and this is a whole other space that is really exploring what the future of collectibles look like. Uh, and then in the analog side uh, on tabletop, you uh, you have a lot of games that are kind of uh, breaking away. And right now we're seeing a renaissance in the TCG space with so many new games coming out. And I think I'm really hopeful that Genesis will actually start the new age of tactical collectible card games because i have seen reddit forums i have seen um other uh posts about people wanting to do this but i've never seen a game stay on the market as long as genesis has yet so far and i could be wrong if anyone can point out to me another collectible card game that's done a board um situation like genesis and has been on the market for four years uh, or more then i would love to know and i'd love to learn from them because uh, there aren't many. Uh, and so we're hoping to break into that new space and really hammer in that. But something that's new, that is really new, I'd say within the past two, three years, are a new type of people or a new type of audience that is focused on the space, which are the investors. We used to have just players and collectors, but now we have investors. And that's a whole new beast to uh to deal with and talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. But like I said just a moment ago, when you start talking about wild amounts of money that people are, are making from these things, whether it's a, a 10 out of 10 rated Charizard or whatever, uh, a Black Lotus in Magic, like these things that are worth just a crazy amount of money for a little piece of cardboard, <laughs> you know, like a little piece of paper, and it's worth thousands upon thousands of dollars. All of a sudden, people that are uh, that don't care about the game, they don't care about games in general, they just care about uh, investing a little bit and then making a lot more down the road as a return. Yeah, you're going to have that kind of thing happen. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the analog side of things as far as the different models, because you had CCGs where, you know, you go out, you buy your booster pack and you get your 10 cards and one of them is rare or super rare. And then the rest are basics or in the middle or whatever. And then you had people going, well, what if we just gave you all the cards? So you had these kind of LCG thing where you know exactly what you're getting. Talk to me a little bit about that, the difference pros and cons and anything else as far as like other ways people have tried to approach doing the analog style. Yeah. Um, so the boost pack model was really interesting when Richard Garfield proposed it. And of course I'm, it feels so bad for me to speak on his behalf, but when I look at how the history is and there's stories out there of him saying, you know, I want to make a game that takes the concept of opening up, um, hockey cards or baseball cards or those collectible cards and you have your collection, but then you can then take those cards and start playing a game with it and make that game similar to D and D that is a crazy concept because that didn't exist before the booster pack to game model wasn't there before. Uh, so uh, being able to open up a boost pack is really, it's exciting. It's in it itself is a game and you talked about this earlier when you said you know people are making content all the time on youtube or uh tiktok or anywhere where the, all they're doing is opening up booster packs and people love this because there's an excitement it's a anticipation are you gonna hit big or are, are you gonna just flop and that is an exciting game itself 
then you take that and you're like, well, I had fun for five uh, five minutes or less opening up the pack. Let's go play a game for the next 30 minutes with those cards I just got. And that's a really cool experience. Uh, and it's something cherished. Uh, but the big challenge here was the financial um, co- the financial like um, burden that was placed upon players when it came to getting into these games. Uh, all of a sudden, being competitive, making a good deck became harder and harder to do. And there is um, a whole psychology thing behind that of why I believe that happened. But it started over time, starting in, uh, say, the early 2000s, uh, making competitive decks in the collectible card game space became harder and harder to do and cost more and more money. And it slowly became a pay-to-win platform for gaming. So on the other side, people started saying, let's make games that uh, take away that pay-to-win. You just buy a box, you get everything you need, and there you go, you just start playing. And now cost isn't a factor to it. However, the downside to that is you lose out on that thing that players love, which is opening up booster packs, the randomization. Uh, A lot of people may say they hate it, but their joy in their eyes when they open up a pack, it's there. It is a real thing. Uh, So... Uh, the the thing that I feel has been lost, the spirit uh, and the intention of the industry that's been lost over the years is being able to open up a pack and always have good, uh, strong enough cards that you could just start playing with them immediately. You d- Nowadays, a lot of times when I open up packs from a new game and I start flipping through the cards and someone there who's very experienced will be looking through it and they're like, oh, you got nothing good in that pack. I'm like, well, that's very unfortunate. I got nothing good, like not even a little good. That's a weird concept to have when it comes to asking people to spend money. I don't like it when you're asking your community to spend money on your game and they get literally nothing good out of it. Uh, so, sorry, I rambled there for a bit, didn't I? <laughs> no, no, you're good. But, you know, it's it's all about dopamine and yeah. Opening a pack that it might be amazing. It might be that super rare card that would be perfect in your deck or, or super collector, uh, a collector's item or, or worth a lot of money, whatever. It's a lot of dopamine going on there. But as a company, you got to be careful. I believe this is kind of a personal opinion, morality thing. I believe you should be careful, careful in how you're manipulating your customers dopamine. And there's a certain degree you want to, you want to give them that dopamine boost where they get excited and they get energetic and they get happy and all those things. But if you're using that as your business model to exploit them, to simply get them to buy more, 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 more so that you have a bigger profit, but at the same time, you're not giving them necessarily more good stuff. I mean, we have, that's a whole nother podcast of morality (laughs) and ethics, but it is definitely something just to to be aware of and to not fall in that trap. Because as a company, you could easily go, you know what, we're going to lower the odds, lower the likelihood of these certain cards. That way people will have to buy more. Well, that's, Definitely manipulation uh, in, in a way that's probably wrong, at least in my opinion. Now, you know, it is what it is. Business is, is business. But I, I think we should you know treat our customers a little bit better. I was going to say, like, it's such a uh, challenging thing. And we see I've seen a really, really amazing video by XK. I think it was XKCD. No, Extra Credits. That's the YouTube channel. Extra Credits does this amazing video about ethical game design. And when they talked about that, it blew my mind because this is something that we know uh, marketers and uh, other industries do all the time. And to realize that this is happening in what's supposed to be our safe space. The reason why we game uh, is because we're trying to find an escape. We're trying to find friends that we can relate to and, uh, you know, relax and enjoy our time together and to realize that these bigger industries are trying to take advantage of that, if it, it muddies the water a lot. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's just something to think about, something to be aware of. If anyone out there listening to this is thinking, I want to do a CCG, I want to get into this space, I want to start a company, just some things to think about on the front end before you even dive in, if you can, and have a plan, have an idea about what to do. But uh, let's talk about standing out. Like you mentioned before, there are so many of these games, especially back in the 90s, there was a a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton. Now there's not anywhere near that many, but still quite a few. And so how can you stand out? You mentioned that your game is tactical. 
And so tell me about that specifically, how you thought about, okay, how can we stand out? Let's make it tactical to, to do that. But talk about standing out in general and then give me some anecdotes for your game. So uh, it's really interesting. Uh, when when you think about it, have you ever read the book um, The Art of Game Design, Designing by Lenses? Oh, no, but I am familiar with it. So. <laughs> um, w- the number one thing they say is, what is your essential experience? What is the one thing you want your player to experience through and through? And everything you do should revolve around that. And this is a brilliant topic because it comes also back to another great ted talk if you ever get a chance to watch it by simon senek where he says start with why um everyone knows what they do they know how they go about doing it but it's so hard for people to communicate why they do what they do and why other people should care uh, should uh, you know listen at all and uh he says that the companies that stand out the people who stand out uh, and the examples he uses are like martin luther king the wright brothers and apple And he says the reason why these people have stood out over uh, the time is because they always communicated why people should care about their message, not what they should do or how they should do it, but why they should care about the message. Uh, And that is one thing that I love about the essential experience is when I talk to people about Genesis, I say, uh, yes, Genesis is a tactical collectible card game, but you are a champion trapped inside of an arena battling for your life and everything the game does around that amplifies that you have a champion card and every time you all the cards that your champion can do there's usually an artwork with which will have your champion doing that action so you kind of create these comic book panels of you fighting in this fight uh and your life is tied to that champion's life uh so we try our best to bring everything back to that essential experience. So this isn't just something about fighting against the noise of collectible card games. This is the same principle that is applies for every industry, every product, uh, designing board games, designing, uh, you know, a, the next cell phone, the next computer, uh, being able to stand across the uh, stand out is the hardest thing to do. But once you know what your essential experience is, Make sure that is written down somewhere on your wall, on your laptop. It is the first thing you say when you sit down and you start designing your game. And that is the thing that you need to reinforce every step of the way. Yeah, I completely agree. And like you said, start with your why at the beginning. You know, if you're trying to do this midway through or towards the end, it's a little bit more challenging. But if you, if you start at the beginning and you have your idea, your core experience, your core market, your, uh, your, your demographic that you're aiming at, and it makes things so much easier. And that's not just for CCGs, that's for any, any, anything that you're going to sell, especially in games. And let's talk about, let's kind of switch over uh, a little bit and keep, keep, keep traveling down this road a little bit and talk about community. We mentioned it before. Let's go deeper into it because with these games, it's a little bit different than board games because if someone buys one board game from one company, they're probably going to go buy a bunch of other board games from other companies. However, in the CCG space, they're probably not going to be heavy into multiple CCGs, multiple companies. I mean, it could get pretty expensive, especially depending on the model that the, that company is using to sell their, their game. And so tell me how in the world you build a community, especially you're not only competing against other companies in this particular situation, you're also competing against Netflix, you're competing against YouTube, you're competing against literally everything else. So how in the world do you build up a, a community of fans, especially raving fans that are going to be there to buy each pack that comes out? The thing that I found really interesting, it wasn't just that I was competing against um, other, like, so I haven't published a board game, so it's hard for me to directly draw the comparison. But my understanding, like when you're putting a board game out there, you're competing, yes, you're competing against some of those bigger companies built in Bradley and Hasbro and stuff like that. But uh, there are a lot of indie developers that you're also competing against. Uh, But when I started in the CCG space, there were only three companies, Hasbro, Konami, and the Pokemon company. And these are all massive, if not multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar companies, they were hundreds of million dollar companies, right? They had everyone's attention. So competing against them was Herculean. It was so, so challenging. Uh, The thing that I found that worked the best was transparency, commitment, and um, uh, dividing ownership 
a lot of the people who have stuck with me from the long term and who have become such loyal fans and such passionate members of the community, they can tell you a story of from very early on where they're like, I helped make that design decision. I was essential to this process. I'm, I did this. I did that, right? They made the game come to life. I had the idea, but it was the community that really made the game succeed. And they know it. I do not hide from that. I want people to know. And we actively give a credit to people like uh, Will K, who's part of our community. And he's constantly out there, you know, talking about the game, doing demos for people. Uh, Alex Miller, who was a huge member of the community and now is part of the game design team. Uh, even um, JC, who, when he was part of testing things, he was like, if it wasn't for me, this card would have been broken when it released. And he's so proud of that. And I want people to know that it is because of these uh, the community members. So that is a big part of it. The other part is transparency. When people started playing Genesis really early in the day, it was a huge risk for them. Uh, they did not know if they're going to get the return on their investment. And to be clear, it is an investment. Uh, they could take their same dollars, spend it on Magic cards or Pokemon cards, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and those would 100% uh, acquire more value as they went on. And 100% they would be able to use those cards immediately because there were people to play against. So a lot of people who were playing with Genesis, they needed to know that I had a vision. And being able to share things, not keep things secret, not hold them back for, in any way, and be like, this is what I'm planning to do for the next five years. If you can help me, if you see the same thing I do, then let's be on the same page. Let's do this together. Uh, so there was a lot of challenges in the early days. And a lot of the people who are big fans back in those days don't play anymore. And I still think of them and I'm sad about it. But at the same time, there are a lot of people from the really early days who are still part of the community. And we talk, we reminisce about how when we first started playing, it was just the two of us or just three of us for weeks and weeks. And now the community is so large that there are new people joining every single day. And uh, it's like, yeah, it's changed a lot. So I, I hope that answers that. Yeah, I think a lot of it really comes down to what you were saying as far as how can you engage the community? How can you involve them? How can you make them feel like they're not only customers, but they're also part of the process? They're also part of bringing this game to life or evolving it. And I think Legend of the Five Rings from back in the day, many, many moons ago, I think maybe did this better than anybody else because the way they would do it, they would have all these tournaments that would be organized play, you know, that these things are real and they're going to have a big tournament at Gen Con. It's going to be for the world championship. Like everything was legit and the way they did it. But what they would do is they would collect all the data from each individual round of tournaments. So the, the local game store level and then the semis at all these different conventions and all the things that were happening. And they would take that data of which clan one, the most, like all the different data points, all the different numbers and things like that. And then that would influence the next round of booster packs that were going to come out. And so they could tell stories. So, you know, one character might be in this certain clan over here in this round of, of boosters, but then they backstabbed, they betrayed their clan and they went over to this other one in the next one. And so in the next round of boosters, that same character showed up in a totally different clan, slightly different artwork. You know, they, now they look a little bit different. Their moves, their, their abilities are different. And so it was storytelling, but it was using the information gathered from the wins and losses of the actual organized play. And so if a certain clan won then this round, then in the next round, that was going to affect the cards and how things were moving. And then they had this huge event at Gen Con that was kind of this culmination of all the storylines, all the things that, that were coming together. And so the story of it is just phenomenal. I watched this like 45 minute long YouTube video explaining just all these ins and outs. And it was just incredible. But if you can do that, if you can tap into your audience, because there was like, there were thousands of people at this L5R event at Gen Con because they wanted to see how it came out. They want to see how it, it ended. It's kind of like watching the final Avengers movie. You want to watch and see how all these storylines come together and then it closes out in this climax. And so if you can pull that off, I think you can do something amazing. And this model lends itself to do that because you are coming out with new cards and new sets and new abilities, new characters, so you can do that in some really cool ways. 
what else? What other things can you do? Like specifically, what are some things that you're doing with Genesis? It's maybe along those lines or other people can learn from. Communication. That is, it's one of the things that a lot of companies get uh, uh, dinged on is the, if a player or if someone who's part of your community has a legit concern, it's something that they think could um, make the game as a whole better, uh, something like an accessibility issue or a, a, a card that they can foresee is going to really break the meta. They should have a way to talk up to the company, like talk to the company, because there's always top-down communication. The company is always trying to market to you, to get you excited, to tell you, oh, buy more, buy more, buy more. But so rarely is there the conversation coming back up. So something I'm really excited about, so I don't know when this podcast will come out, but tomorrow, Monday on the 6th, we actually have a town hall, a round table where Anyone can join a Zoom link and chat with me and the lead game designer. And it's just an open forum conversation for an hour. Hopefully it won't be so many people that no one gets a chance to like talk. Everyone's talking over each other. But as long as it's a reasonable, about, a reasonable amount of people and we have questions kind of queued up, the whole entire point here is for people to talk to us, give us their feedback, get, uh, pitch their questions. Um, that's something that... I know some of the other companies that are competing with me right now, um, They there's some challenges that they're having when it comes to connecting with their audiences. And the audience is like, if they could just give us some level of communication, some chance to have some of that transparency, then I would be 100% more sold in the product. Uh, and it's it's difficult. I get it. It's hard to get criticism about your baby, the game you've been designing for years, but it is necessary. It is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it comes down to availability. And are you making yourself available to this community? And honestly, at this point, there's no excuse not to. We have Twitter. We have so many different ways that people can interact with you as a creator, as a company, as a designer. And so, yeah, there's really no excuse in the modern era to not be available at least some way. And even if you're not like taking in actual, even if you're not actually taking the feedback, at least give people an opportunity to say it. You know, a lot of times people, they just want to say their piece and then they feel better about it. But if you're not even listening at all, yeah, it's not going to help you out. Like uh, between Twitter, Discord, Facebook, YouTube, there's so many opportunities to do that. And it's not like the old days where, um, the designers were just these mysterious figures who hit hit inside of an office and all of a sudden this new set would come out and be amazing or something like that. Uh, no, we have a chance to engage with people around the world continuously. Uh, there should be some level to do that. So this is part of the reason why my email is insanely accessible. It's everywhere on the Genesis website. If you want to get a hold of me, that is not hard to do. Now, me getting uh, replying to the email might take a day or two, but I usually do. I check all my emails. Uh, so it's being accessible is uh, is a practice skill that people think just comes inherently easy to everyone. N no, you got to just you got to start doing it. Get better at it. It'll take time, but you got to do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. I remember when you were on the show a year and a half ago, we were talking about you getting the game into game stores. And basically, you were doing a grassroots approach. You were running around Toronto, running around Canada, trying to get the game in as many game stores as possible. But it was like you driving hours to talk to people personally that owned the game stores, that were customers at those game stores, and you were just building it from the bottom up. Now you're in distribution, you've kind of expanded. So tell me, first of all, how far you've come and, and where things are at right now. And how did you do it? How could somebody else learn from your process and actually get a game into, you know, all sorts of different places? So when we last spoke, my guess is I had about a dozen stores carrying Genesis at that time. Uh, now we are in 90 plus stores. Uh, and I say plus because I know that there are many, many, many other stores out there that I haven't connected with. Because once you get into the distribution cycle, you don't know which stores are carrying your product. And this is a weird kind of um, distrust that I find in the industry. Uh, the distributors, and rightly so, they don't want to tell you their client list uh, because they don't want you to go around and start poaching their clients and selling to them directly. 
But on the other hand, it makes it really difficult for me to engage with them and figure out what those stores are, or what the challenges those stores are facing. Uh, anyway, so um, yeah, distribution is a whole other, uh, whole other monster when it comes to the landscape of selling a product when i was going store to store i was lucky if i was making like selling a couple of booster boxes a month uh and now it's at a point where it's nearly impossible for me to hold on to inventory uh, it's just going out the window really really quickly uh so yeah i i recommend anyone who's starting in any product space to start small, niche yourself. There is a great book called The Art of the Start, and they have this entire top uh, this chapter about niche yourself. Uh, start with one store. Figure out what are the successes and the failures, what are the things that they need for your product to succeed, and what are the things you need from them for the product to succeed, and have that open dialogue, and then bring on a second store within your capacity then a third, then a four, and pay, pay your due diligence. Because if you grow too fast, and all of a sudden you have 100 stores, but you've never gone through the effort to figure out what the stores uh, need for your product to succeed, and what you need from the stores for the product to succeed, then guess what? The product won't succeed. We've seen this with so many collectible card games already. This is not uh, hidden knowledge. It is out there. Uh, so... This is one of the things I'm very grateful for. Even though it was a struggle for the past four years and it was difficult making ends meet sometime, uh, I now have that knowledge and I'm doing using it the best I can to have very successful partnerships around, uh, not just within North America, but around the world. We have uh, a lot of stores in Germany and UK. We even have a store in Hong Kong. Uh, these are things that, uh, if it wasn't for those early, early days and the early rejections to figure out how it could become better, uh, I would not know what to do now. That's awesome. And congratulations on being able to get into 90 plus different stores. Can you give me any specific data points for someone to walk away from this episode and kind of think about it maybe as a goal? Like, did the distributors reach out to you? Were you reaching out to them? Did you need to get the game into a certain number of stores? Did you need to sell a certain number of copies before a distributor would take you seriously? Any kind of information like that? So the big thing that I did, even from day one, I think it was within my first year, I started talking to distributors and I said, hey, I have a game. I'm trying to get into market. Um, this is where I'm at so far. And they'll look at my game and be like, you're not ready for distribution. You need to do this. I'm like, awesome. So I'd spend a year and do that. And I come back to them and they're like, you're not ready. You need to do this now. And then I'll spend a year and do that. And every year I would be opening those conversations. I constantly was talking to them about how we can do things better. Uh, and I treated them like, uh, like a professor that you're trying to get a good grade in their class. You constantly are trying to do better. You show them the work, you get their feedback, you do one-on-ones with them, you do whatever it takes to get that passing grade. And eventually when they when you've solved all the problems that they're presenting to you, then they know you're taking it seriously. Uh, and we were very blessed that we found a distributor that was like, hey, yeah, I think you have everything ready. Let's go for it. And they picked up the product. And once one distributor picks it up, then another, then another. Uh, it is it is a grind, but it is a grind worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about your team. I know at this point you have several people that are working with your company doing all sorts of different things, but tell me about like, if I was just going to get started, maybe, maybe not just start, cause if I'm just getting started, it's probably just me. But at what point do you start hiring other people? What positions should someone be thinking about? Even if they're just hiring freelancers to do project work, what are, what are some things that people should think about as far as the team and bringing people together, communicating, especially early on. And then we can kind of talk about now the stage you're in, in a minute. <laughs> um, so one thing that I found uh, throughout the history of the company is that people always want to join your team and be a game designer. They want to, they're like, hey, if you can do this, I can do this. And they start pitching ideas and you get really excited and you start working with some people. Uh, be careful who you start working with because a lot of those people are not there for, uh, do not have your game's best interests at heart. They are there to uh, do things 
for themselves. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't give them a chance. So uh, I started off by bringing in artists. Obviously, we had artists before we even started the project. The first partner, the first partner I made was with the art director uh, because that was the one skill set that I knew I could not do on my own. So I brought in an art director uh, and we worked together uh, and that worked really well. Our art director now, Demian, amazing person and such a phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal spirit. He's just such a wonderful guy. Uh, so he came in, he started really making the game uh the direction of the game really solid and he un- he could look at our budget and our finances and find the right artist for us at all times so that uh, it was filling in that gap that was the most important first step uh the next thing was uh bringing in people who you could rely on who you could bounce ideas off of vent to uh and start collaborating with an appropriate way. So I had game designers, but at the same time, I talked to them about everything related to the business. What is my marketing strategy? What is my sales strategy? And they would pitch ideas and together we would collaborate and try to find the best directions. But now that I'm at a bigger, like things are a little bit bigger and the company is starting to stabilize, the thing that I realized is the most important thing is to have a designated uh, president or CEO of the company. Uh, this is the one thing that I think a lot of people come in with rosy glasses when they look at the, starting off their own publishing company is that you're like, I can design the games and publish them. But no, no, you need someone who is purely focused on growing the company and someone else who's purely focused on game design. And even though it was something I was very reluctant to do and I still have my own anxiety about it. But at the end of the day, bringing in Alex Miller to be our lead game designer, it was the right decision, and I don't regret it. There are times where I'm like, I want to be more involved in the conversation, but I never regret the fact that he came onto the team because it helped. It took, you know, forty plus hours off of my plate, which I then replaced with forty plus hours of marketing and sales, uh, and that was essential. Yeah, that's a great point. It's very difficult to be really good at both of those things. And even if you are really good at both of them, you probably don't have the time to devote legitimately to both of them, especially if you have a family or if you have other things going on, or if this is just your side business, it's not even your your day job. Like there's just so many things to take into account and having other people alongside you on the team. That's one thing I've learned over the last couple of years is anything I'm not good at or that I just hate or that just takes up a lot more time than I wish it would hire it out or delegate it to somebody that's already on the team or, or find someone to, to help with it. And the, the dividends that come back on that are just tenfold of what the one exception I have with that is I delegate as much as you can, as much as you can. But the w- exceptions are anything related to money, sales and bookkeeping. Uh, I, that was a lesson. That was something a mentor of mine told it's when you first start selling your product, do it yourself. Don't hire someone to sell it because if you cannot sell your product, no one else will be able to do it better because you should be the one who's the most passionate about your product in the entire world. Uh, and if that passion isn't being shown, then uh, people will doubt the success of the product. Uh, and then your bookkeeping. Eventually, you'll you'll hire someone to do it, but you should learn how to do that yourself. You should learn how to uh, make sure that you're not overspending and you're not all of a sudden in crippling debt. <laughs> Yeah, those are definitely good points to to consider. All right, let's talk about Kickstarter. I've seen a lot of people try to launch their company, launch their their CCG from Kickstarter first. No one really knows about the game. They haven't done a whole lot of of getting the game out there into game stores or into the world. They're going to go to Kickstarter first and then launch the everything, basically. You did not do that. You went the complete opposite. You spent years of, of just grinding and getting the game into game stores and into customers' hands and building up a community, building up an audience. And now you've launched a Kickstarter. So tell me the pros and cons of maybe both sides. Tell me why you decided to wait. Give me the full picture of, of that side of things. So I, I'll be honest. When I first started the company, first started the project, the plan was to do a Kickstarter. Uh, and I backed away because the relationship between kickstarter and tcgs at that time was very um strained uh there weren't a lot of successful tcgs on kickstarter 
The other part to it is what I didn't need. What I didn't need at that time was a lump sum of capital up front. What I needed at that time was rolling sales month over month, uh, because that was the thing uh, that um, encourages you to work hard all the time. When you realize that hey, I'm not going to hit my quota this month, you then have to buckle down and start finding a way to make sales. Uh, so. I'm very grateful that I made that pivot early on and I focused on building the company. The other part to it is I, from all my experience, from everything I've done for the past four years and beyond, uh, I realized that TCGs, you are building something more than just a game. Uh, so if I look at building, I had some board game ideas that I wanted to publish. I realized, okay, what was the life cycle of the product? You design it, you spend years designing, playtesting, getting everything ready. Uh, then you go into manufacturing, you sell it. And then after your inventory is sold out, you then have a decision of, do I make more and sell more? Or do I just leave it there? And that's it. But you don't, there isn't a need to make an expansion. It's not the end of the world. If you don't, uh, your board game should be self-sustaining. And if it requires an extension, well, that's, that's, weird but most board games that i've played or most uh, contained games that i've played they don't need an extension so but tcgs on the other hand require it you have to be releasing new sets otherwise you're not living tried and true to what a tcg is so because there was a lot more infrastructure to build i am happy that i spent the last four years learning how to do that building those relationships. I didn't just jump into this, get a lot of money, and then start building those relationships, start making those mistakes, start failing on someone else's dollar. I did that on my own dollar. I learned from all my mistakes. And the product we have now that's on the market, which is JLR's second edition, it is significantly better than our alpha, like leaps and bounds better than our alpha. Uh, and that is why I'm really happy to be going to Kickstarter now, because I feel at this point, we have distribution. We know how to do manufacturing. We know how to do design and play testing. We have a wonderful art team that is very devoted to the project and will continue to bring out amazing product. We are, we are strong in our marketing segment. We have a great audience already, and we know how to do organized play. And like we just did a championship on November 20th. We know how to put together a big championship event. All the pieces are there. We're just doing them at a really small scale. This Kickstarter now allows us to take things to the next level, do things on a bigger scale. And now is the right time to ask for investments because I'm not going in there with a, 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 a proof of concept. I'm there saying, here is data of why this is something worthwhile to invest into. And I'm going there ready and prepared. Uh, and that's the part that's really exciting about Kickstarter for me is that we have legs to stand on. We're tried and tested product on the market compared to something that's never even seen playtesting. Right. And one of the main barriers that you have on Kickstarter is trust. Do backers trust you enough to deliver the thing that they are buying? And in a TCG situation, you have to have a whole lot more trust because is this game even going to exist two or three years from now? And so what you did was, was so smart in that you built up an audience, you built up a track record of delivering, of putting out new sets, putting out new ideas, putting out organized play and different things like that. And then people can say, okay, this company has been around for a while. They've been doing this for a while. They've built up a community. They've already got groups you know, that are talking about the game and the meta and, and all that kind of thing. And so the trust barrier was an easier one to overcome because you already had things established. And especially that that's going to be the case with investors or people wanting to come alongside your company. And so I think that's a super smart way to do it. And if you're not going to do it that way, if you're going to start off uh, with, with a Kickstarter and try to make that your, your launching point, gosh, you better have a plan. And because this is, this is a 10 plus year potentially commitment. It's kind of like adopting a dog. Like you don't adopt a dog for six months. Like you're, you're hopefully going to adopt that dog until it passes away 10, 12, 15 years from now, depending on the uh, the breed. And so something just to, to keep in mind, if you're going to be doing this, it should not be a flash in the pan. It should have 
uh, a plan long term, right? Um, so it's definitely something to uh, to think about. And as we talk about long term, where do we go from here? What would you say is the future of TCGs? Is it going to be more meshing digital and analog, finding a way to kind of be a happy medium? Is it going to be straight digital? Does analog still remain king over the next 10, 15 years? What are your thoughts on the future? So uh, the thing that I really do hope is that we see an emphasis on analog because they're the local game stores are so paramount for creating uh, these healthy environments for people to come play and engage with one another. And if we switch everything over to digital, we'll see them suffer a lot. And uh, that's something I don't want to see happen in the future. Um, another thing that I think is very important when we start talking about the future of this industry is our environmental impact. Uh, we use a lot of paper. We ship a lot of product. We uh, And then it creates a lot of waste. Uh, it, it's not... Actually, this is one of the biggest pains I have about this industry compared to um, if I were to make something like uh, Dominion, like a, a living card game, where uh, they... They, you buy the product, all the cards are there, and all the cards are needed. There's a purpose for every single one. Where here, there are so many people who are just sitting on bulk cards that are just sitting in a corner. And that environmental uh, damage is just, it's growing more and more. So what I'm seeing now is actually one of our competitors, and I want to give them a huge kudos for this, is Flesh and Blood. They have been thinking about how do we switch over to using paper wrappers instead of plastic. Uh, and like, that is great. That is something that I think more people need to be thinking about. What are we doing? That's carbon neutral. What can we be doing? Anyway, I can ramble about that for a long time. That's something I'm very passionate about. Um, so that's a big thing. And I think also getting people, um, building communities again, I think after COVID we saw so many people feel very distant from one another. It was hard. Uh, everyone felt detached and well, not everyone, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but my group of peers uh we felt detached from one another so when we could meet up again it was so wonderful uh and i think the idea of people meeting together playing games together is uh, just a human urge and i i don't think we should be switching over to purely digital in the future Right, right. And hopefully companies aren't only looking at the bottom line because it, it's real easy to look at the digital space and go, well, you know, we don't have to spend a bunch of money on paper, on shipping, on anything. It's literally just a digital thing. It's, it's equivalent to an email and how cheap that is. And so hopefully they're thinking through, yeah, but what about the value of having people sitting across from a table staring at each other, staring at the board and the cards that are come, going to come out and, and just that community thinking about game stores and how pivotal they are. They need to exist. And it's, it could be real easy just to get rid of them, right? Amazon is doing a pretty good job of getting rid of them already, right? And so there's a lot of online retailers that are doing a good job of kind of putting these folks out of business, unfortunately. And the detriment to the industry overall is, is massive. And if you don't really take that into account, you could screw yourself over unintentionally because you're only thinking short term, you're only thinking about the dollars and cents right now, and you're not thinking long term, you don't have a plan for the future. And so yeah, hopefully companies will, will think through the full impact of what it would mean to go only digital or to go away from game stores and, and things like that. Well, I said this has been excellent, sir. Closing thoughts. What would you tell someone who's listening to this? Maybe they've got an idea for a TCG. Maybe they're working on one right now. What would you say to encourage them? Uh, so talk to other TCG designers. Feel free to send me an email. I had people calling me, sending emails, text messages all the time being like, hey, I want to design my own card game. What What do you think I should do? Or what's my next step from here? Or how do I find an artist? And I am open. I will actually connect you with people to my art team because uh, at the end of the day, we should be supporting one another. I think it's uh, it helps this industry thrive if there's more people who are challenging the status quo and who are innovating the space more and more. Uh, the other part is talk to local game store owners. They are some of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. Uh, so support your local game stores. Uh, connect with them as much as you can. And also talk to content creators. They are so knowledgeable because uh, they have to spend all their time trying to create up new content. And the best way to do that is becoming an 
uh, like an expert in this space. So uh, connect with content creators. Gabe, you're super accessible. I, I remember sending my first email being like, oh, you're never going to read it. And then <laughs> you read it. And I was like, I was blown away. Uh, so content creators are really accessible and are such wonderful people. I usually, after an interview, it's like five minutes afterwards, and we're just laughing and we're talking about other stuff and we're joking. Uh, the, everyone's just so nice. So open up, have those conversations, and start pitching your idea and start start doing it. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree on that. Well, hey, man, you got a Genesis up on Kickstarter right now. We talked about it a good bit, but give me like the two-minute elevator pitch and why people should go check it out right now. All right. So Genesis is a tactical collectible card game. It combines a lot of amazing aspects from miniature games like Warhammer or other um, those strategy games with the complexity of a collectible card game. The idea is you are a champion in arena fighting for your life. uh, And it is just an epic battle between you and your opponent. So what we have up on Kickstarter is for our next set origins, which is going to be a core set. It has everything you're going to need to just start playing. You're not missing any of the pieces if you don't have any of the older sets. Uh, And then uh, it's going to be, it's, yeah, it just introduces 12 new champions, a bunch of new cards, and it's going to be absolutely amazing. I'm so excited for this set. Awesome. Well, I said really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with, with getting out into the world even more and the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the show again. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?